Well, I don't think I'm the only one, but does anybody else feel like traffic in Greenwood is starting to get just a little full? Amen. I'm not the only one? Okay. Man, okay. I was just pulling out onto Fry Road uh, right up here, two stoplights north of here, 31 and Fry Road, and I was at a dance studio that was like 500 feet from that light there. Uh, picking up my daughter from dance class, sitting there, and all I was trying to do was turn right. Like, I wasn't one of these crazy people trying to turn left. Like, I knew my limits, right? Just trying to turn right. And just car after car after car after car after car, and just no gap. And uh, I'm just sitting there waiting, thinking, well, surely, you know, the light will change, and then there will be a gap. And so the light changed, and then all the traffic that was now turning right onto Fry Road began coming and they left no gap. They filled right in behind the last people. So, so then the light changed again and all the people turning left onto Fry Road came. And, and they too left no gap. And, and then the light changed again and all the people coming straight came and they filled in right behind no gap. And I just sat there for several cycles of this light thinking to myself, like, is, is this going to be forever? Like, are, the, are they going to find us in three weeks and say the cause of death was they ran out of food waiting for a gap to come in, in the traffic. Uh, so 30,000 people go through that traffic light every day. And I must have watched 1,000 of them go through with my little girl in a tutu in the back seat uh, just waiting for, for a gap to come. And then finally, after many turns of the light, lo and behold, friends, you would not believe it, a gap in the traffic came. Like big enough to fit your minivan in, like just perfect. And there it is coming. And now I know, okay, I'm not going to be waiting here forever. There's the gap. And here's the funny thing that happened. As soon as I saw that gap in the traffic, and I knew that the wait was going to be over soon, as soon as I could see the end to the wait, all of a sudden I went from uh, irritable and uh, anxious, difficult to be around, impatient, Two, I see the gap and then hmm, just happy to be in a van with my little dancer, right? Like everything is okay now that I see this gap and the traffic coming. And, and isn't it like that sometimes? Like my, my circumstances didn't change at all. I was still sitting there, still on the same seat, still got the same cute little girl in a tutu in the back seat. Nothing different. Car isn't even moving yet and the wait isn't even over yet. I've still got to wait for the gap and the traffic to come. But because I saw the gap everything was going to be okay, right? I knew that the end to my wait was coming and everything was going to be okay. If you've ever experienced anything like that, what you've experienced there is just a little picture of the way that hope works in the Christian life. As humans, especially as Christians, we are able to endure great suffering, great temptation, as long as we know there's an end coming and it won't be forever. We can run 26.2 miles as long as we know there's a finish line at 26.2 miles and we don't have to keep running forever. Now, by contrast, if the outlook on life is just total despair and when everything is done, then nothing good happens, then all of a sudden, all of the sweet things in life, all of the best gifts in life even lose their taste. But if we have hope, if we know that all of this ends with our Lord Jesus coming back for us, rescuing us and building for us a new creation where he dwells with us forever, 
then we can have strength to make it through the temptations of life, the sufferings of life, the trials of life, because we know this won't be forever. The great hope that the Bible puts before God's people is the sure and certain return of Jesus Christ, that when he comes back, he will raise all of the dead for himself, that he will build for us a new creation here, new bodies for us, new world for us to live in, new perfect government for us to live under, and we'll dwell with him there forever. And that hope is a big theme in the prophets. It's a theme that we dive into this morning as we continue going through the book of Micah. If you're just joining us, this is the second week of a seven-week series we're doing through the book of Micah, who was a great prophet who rose up to declare that there was no one like God, and his preaching successfully called the king of Jerusalem to repent and thus saved Jerusalem. We're doing seven sermons. We won't cover every text in the book of Micah, but I do hope to cover every major theme. And this morning, we're going to look at the great hope that God puts before his people. As he does that, what I hope he does is just give you that feeling that I got when I saw the gap in the traffic, that feeling that says, ah, this isn't going to be forever. And so my waiting, I can keep waiting because I know this isn't going to happen forever. Let's dive into Micah chapter four. We'll start at verse six. And we're going to read about a whole chapter. We'll go to Micah 5, 5, but we'll only read the first line of verse 5. We'll stop after one line there. Here are the words of the Lord. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves for the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat into pieces many people and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The words of the Lord. 
Through those oracles, the Lord sets before his people the sure and certain hope that he will come and rescue us. The prophets can be hard to follow because they change subject often, and they don't tell you when they are changing subject. You just have to figure it out. I wonder if you have a friend who is like that in conversation. Maybe you're talking and you know you're talking about one thing and you keep talking and then you realize, mm, wait a minute, we're not talking about that anymore, are we? We have, we have changed subjects and you didn't tell me, right? Some of us know what that's like. If you know that feeling, you'll recognize it in the prophets too because they will change subject on you all the time and not tell you that they are doing it. In what we read today, Micah goes through three different points of Israel's history, changing subject twice. And to make matters a bit more confusing for us with our orderly Western minds here, he does it backwards. He starts with the farthest in the future, then comes a little closer, and then finally to the present day in which he is preaching. I'll show you what I mean. In verses 6 through 8, he is speaking to the scattering that will happen after the Babylonian exile. And then in verses 9 and 10, he predicts that Babylonian exile, which will come about 70 years before that scattering. Then in verse 11, all the way through chapter 5, verse 5, he speaks to the present day in which Assyria's great and mighty army is gathered outside of Jerusalem, ready to destroy it. So he speaks to three different troubling situations that Israel either is in or will be in soon. And in each of them, he gives them the hope that the Lord is going to rescue them. That matters for us because the New Testament uses all three of those situations, uh, our enemies gather around us in war, scattering, and exile, it uses all three of those situations to describe the Christian life and some of the trials that we face in the Christian life. And so Micah then whispers to us that we have the same hope that Israel had. The Lord will rescue us from our scattering. The Lord will rescue us from our exile. The Lord will rescue us from the many enemies that are gathered against us. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through those three situations. And just to keep things a, a little bit easier to digest, we'll go through them in chronological order, not in the order that Micah puts them in. So we'll go through the order that they happened. Examine each of the troubles they were in, the hope that they had, and how that gives us hope in our day today. Let's start with verses 11 through 13, where we begin to see the setting of Assyria's army gathered around Jerusalem. You see in verse 11, now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. This depicts the present day for Micah, maybe a few years after he preached this, or maybe even the very moment when he preached this in his lifetime and in Hezekiah's lifetime, the army of Assyria, several hundred thousand soldiers gathered around the city of Jerusalem with their eyes on it to destroy it, salivating, licking their lips, clapping their hands, saying, we cannot wait to destroy this city. They also hired mercenary armies, so they had soldiers from one country and from another country and from yet another country, so it's actually many nations that have assembled together under King Sennacherib of the Assyrian army. And so, rightfully so, the people of Jerusalem are terrified. They probably don't have as many people in their city as there are soldiers outside their city. Never mind the few weapons that they have and near nothing in terms of troops and defenses. 
So they've got this great army outside, and the promise that the Lord gives them is that he has gathered that army not to destroy Israel, but to destroy that army. That's what he says in 12 and 13. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves for the threshing floor, meaning he's gathered them to destroy them. So here's an army that is gathered to destroy Jerusalem, not aware that God has actually gathered them to destroy them. And so the hope we get there is rescue from our great enemies as the Lord consumes them in a moment. What would happen here in this story, just a few moments later, King Hezekiah would go to the Lord in the temple. He would bring a letter that King Sennacherib had written him making demands. He would The king would set that before God and say, God, I can't do this. Help me. Would you help us and save your people? God would send the angel of the Lord into the Assyrian camp that night, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers would die in their sleep that night. They would wake up, and the scripture says they awoke, and there were all the dead bodies. So King Sennacherib naturally gets up, sees all of this, and turns the rest of his army around to go home, saving Jerusalem for another day. The Lord had gathered them to destroy them, not to destroy his people. Now in the New Testament, the Lord uses the same imagery of of war, armies, battle, weapons, to talk not about earthly battles that are fought, but to talk about spiritual warfare, to talk about our ongoing war against Satan, against all of his demons, and even in a sense against the governments that persecute Christians. We read about that some in Revelation 13 two weeks ago. And the nature of that battle is a little different than some other battles we might fight. Uh, You win that battle not by picking up an automatic weapon and going on a rampage. You win that battle by hanging on to the end. All right, so Satan and his friends are out against us, throwing temptation at us, throwing persecution at us, throwing suffering at us, everything that can throw at us to get us to let go of the promise of the gospel, just give up on it. The way you conquer is by holding on. This is a lot like what my friends and I used to do growing up in Florida on the lakes. We would intertube behind a boat. Anybody ever done this? There's two people in this sport, the boat driver and the person hanging on to the tube, right? If you're the boat driver, your job is to sling that tube around and put them through every smash up against this wave and flip over and put them through anything you can to get them to let go of the tube. And if you're on the tube, the way that you win the game is by hanging on to the tube, no matter what the boat driver throws at you. If you can hang on to that tube through the whole ride, you have conquered and you have won. The war of the Christian life is very much the same way. You conquer by hanging on no matter what the enemy throws at you. Ephesians gives to us imagery of of armor for this. So we put on a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation and shoes that are the readiness to go and share the gospel of peace. And then the sword, the sword of the spirit is the, the word of God. As you put on that armor, you're preparing yourself to fight in that battle because Satan and his friends are amassed against us with their eyes on us saying, let them be defiled. Let's destroy them. But they don't understand the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand that the Lord has gathered them like that to destroy them, 
not to destroy us. And so as we fight that fight, one of the things that we keep in mind to stay encouraged is that there is an end date to the fight. I wonder if you're undergoing deep temptation these days. Many of us are. It is easier to fight the good fight and stay holy in temptation if you know that you won't be tempted forever. If you know that an end will come when the Lord rescues you and takes care of your enemies. Those of us going through great suffering and just tempted to lose heart and give up on everything, we might lose heart, we might give up if we forget that we only have to fight for so long. This race has a finish line to it. And whatever you're going through right now, it it won't be forever. A gap in the traffic will come. And what we hope here is that as you see these pictures, even that picture of Assyria's army perishing that quickly, that we could see the hope that awaits for us and be energized to fight the good fight, to cling to the Lord Jesus and to walk in holiness. Christian, your enemies are gathered against you. Satan and his friends just all amassed together with one goal to see an end to your faith. But what they don't fully realize is that they're gathered on a trap door. And the day will come soon enough when the bottom gives out to that trap door. Whatever temptation you're going through right now, you won't suffer it forever. You don't have to hang on forever. You just have to hang on to the end when the Lord returns, and when our enemies perish, even before our eyes. So that's the first hope Micah puts before us. Right now, Satan's army and evil governments are gathered against the church, but the Lord will destroy them. These difficult fights you're fighting, Christian, you won't fight them forever. The Lord will come for you. That's the first one. We move on in the same scene to chapter 5. This also describes the present day or the near present day for Micah. And he goes into detail about one particular thing that Assyria's army is doing to the people, and that is he is humiliating their king. So they're disheartened because their king is embarrassed. You see that in the first verse there. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, which is a taunt, saying you don't have any troops to muster. Go ahead and muster the troops you don't have. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That's either metaphorical, this great army gathered outside Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's king is defenseless, nothing he can do about it, and so he's embarrassed and humiliated that he can't protect his own people. Or maybe it's literal, maybe King Sennacherib went in there with a rod and defenseless King Hezekiah just had to take it while the other king smacked him in the face in front of all of his people. Either way, the king of Jerusalem is utterly humiliated in front of all of his people. And this has been a common tactic in war through the ages. Humiliate the leader and then you dishearten the people so that they won't have any fight in them. That's what the king there intended to do to Jerusalem's king. And if we're honest, our enemy essentially does the same thing for us, right? This is a time-honored tactic. Take out the leaders and you'll dishearten the people. That's how Satan operated in the first century, right? Take out Peter. Take out Paul. Send John to an island on prison. Take out Timothy. Take out Titus, right? Have them all executed and tortured to death in front of their people and see how disheartened the people get then. 
through the years in governments all over the world, perhaps even today, somewhere, somewhere else in the world, authorities came into a church service and arrested the pastor right in front of the people, let everybody else go, but took the pastor away to prison. And why would they do it like that? Well, because all you got to take out is the leader and everyone will become disheartened as they see their leader suffer or be humiliated. Here in the West, it works a little bit differently. Satan still attacks leaders, and he still scandalizes them and humiliates them, but he tends to do it by drawing them deep into sin and tempting them to humiliate themselves. And so a lot of us today are disheartened because the person that led you to Christ or the youth director you had growing up or the celebrity teacher that you learned a lot from wound up turning away from the faith or scandalizing themselves by falling into great sin or maybe they just were an abuser the whole time. Satan still loves this tactic. Humiliate the leaders and then you will dishearten the people. This is why you see so many people deconstructing their faith today because their leaders let them down. They got embarrassed and humiliated because they trusted in what appeared to be a good and godly leader who Satan was able to humiliate in front of everybody. Well, the promise of hope is the same, and it begins in chapter 2. I'm sorry, verse 2 of chapter 5. Now, the great and mighty king of Jerusalem had been brought low and humiliated, but the opposite was going to happen to someone else. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So he points out this little town that isn't significant, too little to even be numbered among the towns. One of those towns out there like next to Mooresville that we just forgot was even there, like the little towns that nobody thinks about. From you, oh little town, he says, one, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of ancient days. And in verse four, he will stand, he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will dwell secure. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. So the great and mighty king of Jerusalem had been brought low. But from the lowly town of Bethlehem, one would be exalted all the way to the top. He says that that's your hope, Jerusalem. One day you'll have a better king who won't embarrass you. This is, many of you recognize already, a prediction of the birth of Jesus Christ, which will happen in the little and insignificant town of Bethlehem. Its only claim to fame was that King David had been born there many hundreds of years ago, and nothing of import had happened since there. But from that little town would rise up a king who would also be struck on the cheek, and who would also be embarrassed and humiliated. But as a reward for his suffering and his life offered as a ransom for many, Philippians 2 says that God in heaven bestowed on him the name above all names. There is no one who can strike him on the cheek now. Now he rules and he reigns. So he's the one that we look to now for leadership. He's the king that we look to and say, if I follow him, if I trust him, if he's my guy and my leader, then I don't get embarrassed because he will never do anything to embarrass me. Never again will he be struck on the cheek. Never again will he be humiliated in that way. That speaks a great word of hope for any of you who have been let down by leaders here on earth. Satan has an easy time scandalizing all sorts of leaders, even Christian leaders. And if your heart's broken over somebody that you put your trust in and they left the faith, 
You put your trust in and they turned out to be abusing people under their watch. What I would tell you to do is look instead to a better king who does not abuse his own, who does not leave the faith, who does not embarrass his followers, but one who rules in majesty, one whose coming is from ancient days and whose authority is from old, the timeless one, Jesus Christ. He's the king and the leader that you can trust in when the other leaders let you down. So that's our second hope we're given today. Now our leaders are often humiliated, but Jesus went from humble to majestic. If we place our hope in him and we wait for him to come back for us, well, then we can make it through the humiliation and the shame of some of us having followed people that we can no longer trust in if we just look to Jesus Christ. So that's our second hope Then now our leaders are often humiliated, but Jesus went from humble to majestic. Now we go back to verses 9 and 10. In going back, we fast forward about 125 years to 586 BC. Micah preached this around 700 BC. We don't know exactly when. The event he's going to predict here, though, is in 586. He essentially tells them, okay, right now you are crying because this army is gathered around you. But you don't need to cry over that. But then he says... I will tell you something you should weep over. I will tell you something you should be sad about. Your children are going to be exiled. Jerusalem will be conquered in your children's day. They will be taken away, it says, to Babylon in verse 10. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country and you shall go to Babylon. Now, this is pretty amazing because it predicts the Babylonian exile even before Babylon had risen up as a world power. Incredible in its own right, 125 or so years before it happened, the trouble that was going to come upon Israel as they would all be taken away and forced to live in a foreign land in the city of Babylon, the capital of the Babylonian empire. So there they would dwell for 70 years with neighbors that spoke a different language, in a culture that was constantly trying to assimilate them and make them into good Babylonians and not like Israelites, around neighbors that just thought they were weird because some of them had the audacity to keep worshiping this this Yahweh God and not just come over to our Babylonian gods. In a strange land with strange customs that just didn't feel like home. And worst of all, the presence of God in the temple wasn't there because they had left the temple back home. That exile is one picture of the Christian life given in the New Testament. Uh, The Apostle Peter writes the book of 1 Peter, and three times in that book he calls Christians exiles. He addresses the book to the elect exiles. Uh, writing it to Christians all over the world, but calling them elect exiles. And then he tells them later, conduct yourselves with fear and reverence throughout your time of exile. And then at another point, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Some of that war imagery coming back, but also exile pictures coming back. And the idea here is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're still living in this world and haven't gone home to God yet, You're living in a land that is not your home and in a land that probably just doesn't feel right whether you have words for it or not. In a land that is 
full of a culture constantly trying to assimilate you and make you into a good American, a good citizen of earth, right? We have to filter what TV shows and what music you listen to and and what movies you go to see in the theater because you know there is this pull from the culture trying to assimilate you into what would be our Babylonian culture, good old American culture. In a land where things don't feel right, where people look at us and say, you guys are still worshiping Jesus? And you still haven't changed your minds about marriage? Like, you guys are so backwards, right? Well, we live in a world that just isn't right, that just isn't our home. Well, we're given a great hope like they were given as well. He says to them in the end of verse 10, There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. So you're going to go into exile, he says, but... It won't be forever. You won't be dwelling in Babylon forever. The Lord will rescue you and bring you home. That's our third hope we have today. Now we live in exile, but the Lord will bring us home. I wonder if the world just doesn't feel right to you. Now, there's some of the stuff I talked about a minute ago, the way that culture is always trying to assimilate us and things just don't feel right and what we build around here. But Even the eternal things don't feel right here. People aren't supposed to die, right? But here, it's just a way of life, right? It just happens all the time. Tragedy isn't supposed to happen. We weren't made for that. But here on this planet, it just happens all the time. And it's just a way of life to read about in the news what awful thing happened yesterday. We can look around in this world and say, this can't be it. This can't be home. This can't be what things are supposed to be like. And the promise the Lord gives to his church, he says, I am coming for you. And when I do, I will build a world where we always grow wiser, but we never grow old. I will build a world where all the dead are raised and no one dies again. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death. He says, I will build a world where all of the culture glorifies me. Can you imagine when the Lord raises from the dead all of the best Christian musicians and artists and filmmakers and all the great culture makers of our faith who have ever lived, raises them all from the dead, renews all of our hearts and minds so that our creativity has almost no limits. And in wisdom, he then resources us with More resources than Amazon is spending on the Lord of the Rings series given to his people to make great art with, to make incredible shows and incredible movies and great music and great paintings and forms of art that we probably haven't even imagined yet. And perhaps the best thing of all is we won't have to filter through, okay, I think I can watch that one, but I don't think I can watch this one. Like we have to, you know, you fire up whatever, Disney Plus or Netflix, and it's like a a game to try to find something that's holy enough that you can watch it, right? It's not going to be like that in the coming kingdom. We'll open up whatever it is, and every last song will grow you in wisdom and glorify Jesus Christ. And be made better than any music is made today. If your heart breaks over the way culture is today, look to the future. Look, look to hope. Our Lord will come for us and he will build a better world. A world where no one perishes, where none of us grow old, but we all grow wiser. That world is coming. Our home is coming to us. 
Now, if you can keep your eyes set on that, well, then it's a little easier to look at, you know, some song you probably shouldn't be listening to or some show you probably shouldn't be watching and say, you know, I can, I can give that up. Why, why is it easy to give that up? Because we got better stuff coming. Because our hope is in Jesus who loves culture and loves to make things. So that's the third hope we have today. Today we live in exile, weeping as we're homesick, sorrowful yet rejoicing, but the Lord will bring us home. Lastly, let's back up to verses 6 through 8. After the Babylonian exile, the people would come home to Jerusalem. It would be in ruins. They would come home and try to rebuild it. But the truth is, not all of them would come home. Many of them would go other places and several of them had already left Babylon and gone all over the world and so much like tea goes from a tea bag all throughout the hot water and the whole glass the Jewish people began to spread around the whole world scattered without centralized government without a centralized leader and what we often call the dispersion or the diaspora begins that is the scattering of the Jewish people all over the world so yeah they went home But they didn't all go home, and it really was never the same again. To that scattering, the Lord gives a great hope. There they are, scattered and weak, back in their home city, with no king and no central government, under the rule of another government, Greece and then Rome. And he says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant. Those who were cast off, I will make a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And then verse 8, assuring them, you will have a king in that day. So the hope he's giving to a scattered and weak people is, I will gather you together again, and I will make you a strong nation under a strong king. Now, literally, this will be fulfilled in some predictions that are given in the book of Romans and maybe Galatians, a few other places, that toward the end times, the Jewish people will experience a great revival, many of them coming home to Jesus Christ, so that they will be there with us when he returns and rejoice in him with us there, thus making them a strong nation in that way. In a broader sense, though, this is very much true of the whole church. In fact, that image of scattering or the diaspora, the dispersion, uh, the Apostle James writes his letter and he addresses it to Christians saying to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, the 12 scattered tribes, writing it to Christians, calling us the dispersion. And indeed, that is what winds up happening. There are Christians scattered all over the world, aren't there? And here we are gathered in this church here, and there's another one over there, and another one over there, and there they are all over the world scattered without the strength of a centralized government. I can see why having a pope is so attractive to the Catholic Church. You have strength and longevity when you have a centralized leader. We don't have that, though. We're just kind of scattered all over the place. Often the churches and the denominations don't get along, and here we are in a scattered weakness until the Lord comes for us. But the Lord says, I am coming for you, and I will gather you all together. No longer will you gather in local churches, but I will just gather all of mine together. Here's the picture we get. When Jesus returns, there'll be the sound of a trumpet in heaven, the cry of a command, the sound of an archangel, and he will return. Every eye will see him. 
And then the first to rise are the dead in Christ. So all of those Christians that you have ever known who have died will rise from their graves and meet Jesus in the air. So he'll have gathered at that point every Christian who has ever died. But all the living ones, us, will still be down here for a few moments. So then he will gather together all of the living Christians to himself and we will meet him right there in the air, all of us, for the first time in history. Every Christian who has ever lived gathered in the same place at the same time. And then we'll dwell with him forever. This is the good news that we have in the hope of his coming. We won't be scattered like this, some of us meeting here and some of us meeting over there. There won't be doctrinal divisions. There won't be all of the difficulty between churches that have the same doctrine but just don't get along so they're split anywhere. If your heart breaks over those things, you can look forward to the day when God gathers all of us together and makes us strong under King Jesus. So that's the last hope we get this morning. Right now we're scattered and weak, but the Lord will gather us and make us strong. So if you're a believer, here's what these hopes can do for you. If you're a believer, you're likely going through some stuff, perhaps great suffering and thinking, I don't know how long I can make it. I can't make it through this forever. Or maybe you're going through great temptation. Maybe there's just a constant over and over again temptation that comes upon you to fall back into that old sin pattern or fall into something new that you've never fallen in before. And it is just on you all the time. And you are looking to God saying, God, I can't do this forever. I've got a breaking point, right? The good news that Micah gives you here is that you don't have to do it forever. There's a gap in the traffic, proverbially speaking. You can see the end coming. And when your Lord comes for you, Christian, your enemies will be no more to harass you. You will live forever in a right home that feels right. You will be under a king who will make you proud to have him as your king. And you will be united with every Christian you have ever been severed from before. So this won't be forever. Let that give you strength to put on the armor And fight the fight because you don't have to fight forever. That's the call to the Christian this morning. Stand and fight for you won't have to fight forever. Others of you maybe are considering following Jesus. You have heard about it maybe a few times from this pulpit or from somewhere else. And I hope that getting a glimpse of hope gives you just a little picture of how wonderful he is. He is good to his people. He is worth following and giving your all to. And what I want you to know is that the hope that comes with him and everything else that comes, him as a person, his salvation, his ways and his rules, all of it come together as a package deal. If this hope sounds attractive to you, if that sounds like a better future to you than the oceans rising to swallow our cities and the whole earth turning into a desert, if this sounds like a more attractive hope to you, well, the way to receive it is to receive all all of Jesus Christ, not just the hope in the future he gives us. And so that means recognizing that you have sinned before him and that you need the forgiveness that he has secured by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead granting us eternal life. It means recognizing that you need eternal life because you will die without it and looking to his resurrection for that. Realizing that you need good ways to live by and that his teachings and his word are just those ways. Coming to him and receiving 
all of him. Forgiveness, hope, ways, and all of the rest. So that is my call to anyone considering following Jesus. Put your whole trust in him for he is worthy and he sets before you a great hope. Let's pray together, church.